Welcome to the Blockchain DNA Podcast. This show brings you the latest in blockchain technology and global developments in business and fintech. Presented by Metaverse DNA. DNA, the Metaverse Dual Chain Network Architecture. Hi, I'm Alex Lightman, and this is the Lightman Report. DNA, the Metaverse Dual Chain Network Architecture. Hi, I'm Alex Lightman, and I'm pleased to present to you Lending Past, Present, and Future Part 1. So we're going to go over the past and present of lending, and then the present and future in part two. So here we go. Uh, the first loans uh, were way back in the past. As with other traditional financial services, lending has a long history. And the uh, Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia start, started lending at approximately the same time. There's a science fiction story called Steamship Time that talks about when it's time for something to happen, it will happen. And they refer to it in the story as when it's steamship time, it's steamship time. And they're going to come regardless of what preparation or which nation. It's going to come somewhere. The first lenders, as we've said in the past, were temples and also individuals. And in 1850 BC, the Babylonian town of Sippar, they had, there was a clay tablet with the promise. At harvest time, someone named Amil Mira would pay 330 measures of barley to whomever held that tablet. That's the first recorded no, uh, loan that we know, and that was in cuneiform. And then we have lending as a reason for riots from Babylon to the Great Depression. You have uh, this history throughout humanity of unregulated lending with high percentage interest rates, the loans can't be repaid, and that was a reason for riots from revolution from thousands of years ago, thousands of years BC, until today. The first lending regulations we know of can be read in the Hammurabi laws in 1754 BC, and the same law, the same regulations, was published by the Athenian tyrant Pisistratus in 547 BC. And during the Great Depression in the United States, uh, faced with financial disaster, families split up or migrated from their homes in search of work. There were Hoovervilles, there were shanty towns constructed of packing crates and abandoned cars and cast off scraps that sprung up across the nation. And communists used slogans uh, asking for debt abolition. And we see that now uh, in Los Angeles and Venice. You see people who've taken scraps and created their own little Hoovervilles uh, all along the, the boardwalk. Uh, and in the past, in Middle Ages, there was an official ban on interest. In Europe and the Middle East, Islam and Christianity almost banned lending with interest rate since it was seen as being wicked. Uh, Catholics used bills to avoid this ban. And there were different social groups that provided these kind of financial services of loans, such as Jewish community members, Italian merchants, uh, who were responsible for the Renaissance, which is based on banking in Florence, and the Knights Templar. I think it's very instructive to look at how people got rid of their debts at the sovereign level uh, with the story of the Knights Templar. And so uh, Philip the Fair, uh, France, was substantially in debts to the Knights Templar, who were a monastic military order 
and their original role was as protectors of Christian pilgrims in the Latin East, basically what we call the, the Middle East now. And they had been largely replaced by banking and other commercial activities by the end of the 13th century. And Philip used a disgruntled complaint against the Knights Templar as an excuse to move against them um, and killed the Knights Templar in part to free himself from his debts. And this was depicted in Star Wars ep Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith, as the murder of almost all the Jedi after uh, uh, Darth Sidious, uh, a a.k.a. the Emperor Palpatine, gave clone protocol 66 to all the uh, clone troopers who were with the Jedi. And at daybreak on Friday, the 13th of October, 1307, hundreds of Templars in France were simultaneously arrested by agent of Philip the Fair, and they were tortured into admitting that there was heresy in the order. And the Templars were supposedly answerable only to the Pope, but Philip used his influence over Clement V, who was his pawn, to disband the order. Uh, Jacques de Molay was burned at the stake in 1314, and he recanted the confession from years before, and he cursed the Pope and the King to the 13th generation. Within 16, uh, sorry, six weeks of this, Pope Clement V died, and uh, in eight months, uh, Philip the Fair perished in a hunting accident, like uh, very much reminiscent of King Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones, which sets off the whole war for the throne among all the different kingdoms. And Protestantism came along when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the to cathedral door in, uh, in uh, Württemberg. Uh, countries were permitted entering, uh, lending with interest rates, and the history of banking in Great Britain started in 1694. The Bank of England lent to the state 1,200,000 pounds with an 8% annual interest rate. Lending was an important part of trading and colonization, and it was provided by the state, by individuals, and by merchant banks. But where retail and commercial banks lent to widely, the state gave loans only to a very small group of people. And that may sound like something that's only in the past, but we look at the kind of funding that's gone out during the COVID explosion, um, and that's gone to a relatively small elite group of people as well, considering that there are over 10 million businesses in the United States. And you might find it interesting to look across the centuries at what's been happening with the averages. So in the 1300s, the nominal rate of interest on average was 7.3%, and inflation was 2.2% on average, so the real rate was 5.1%. In the 1400s, the real rate was 9.1%. In the 1500s, there was 6.1%. In the 1600s, 46 1700s, 3.5, 1800s, 3.4, the 1900s, 2%, and the 2000s, 1.3% falling towards zero. And we can see that better in this. But we basically, for the most part, except for the 1400s, um, we, you know, which is after the uh, Black Death killed a third of the people in Europe. And so there are real supply constraints for labor. There was a lot more demand for labor, and that rose uh, that raised prices all over. So if we look at this, we see the nominal rate of interest over on the y-axis, and then we have the time period. And so we basically have the real rate of interest trend, and we're going down, 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 down across the centuries, heading towards zero. So when we talk about the historically low rates of interest, we're talking about 
all of the recorded history where we have, you know, year to year, where we have all the data, we've never seen anything like the current moment. So anybody who says, oh, yeah, yeah, we've seen this before, this has happened before, that's actually not true. We're in a very unique place. So I'll stop here on part one, and I hope that uh, to see you when we're doing lending, past, present, and future, part two on the Lightman Report. Thank you for your time, and don't forget to like and subscribe if you like this and you want to see part two and other Lightman Reports. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Now, back to the show. Welcome to today at the interview about the latest Lightning Report last week that was on lending. This is a really, really interesting topic as it's so up to date in recent months. Um, looking back in history, where Alex took us, we went from barter trade through gold to all these standards in paper with fiat currency, and now we're in digital money. So we're at a paradigm of a lot of shifts in lending. Now, if we saw a steady decline in the use of cash over the last years, I mean, Europe is sort of leading the way with almost everything in pin transactions, cash register, and supermarket. This, of course, has influenced the lending in getting more under regulatory overview as well. Uh, there are measurements you know, taken by governments and authorities. There's digital bookkeepings that come into the realm of what used to be just handing a paper note over to somebody else. And the recent pandemic shows that besides the promotion of cashless payments because it's safe, it doesn't spread the virus because there's no physical contact anymore, that there's a strong underflow from people wanting to keep cash and not just stay in cash, but you saw a recent flux in people buying gold. So, um, Eric, do you think that this new pandemic that we experienced this year will change the development of lending as such? Uh, I wouldn't say change, I would say accelerate. So the change already happened, it's just in a slow, slower pace, I would say. Uh, but uh, uh, I think the, uh, the lending thing is, lending is the most important thing in the finance. So if you look back, uh, like thousands of years, I mean, uh, Alice did a great job in his, uh, in his piece that uh, it, it looked back like, like Knights Templar and Jewish community, all, all those. But think about this, lending itself, debt itself, actually triggered the very first technology we call it writing. It, think about this. If, you, if it's a cash business, why do you want to write it down? You, you don't need to write it down. Unless you borrow somebody's money, then that's a ledger, right? So ledger is the first, triggers the first writing. And uh, interestingly, blockchain right now is what? It's a ledger. It's just less, like a decentralized ledger. Right? So I'm, I'm thinking that um, nowadays we talk about blockchain, we more talk about cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is a way of, you know, cash. So I think cash needs ledger, but you know, debts or say lending need ledger even more. So I'm thinking that we're going down this path, a decentralized ledger and decentralized lending. Uh, the pandemic itself will, will accelerate it. Um, but when I'm not seeing that uh, we're, we're getting there very soon, because uh, it, it takes a lot, lot more than we think 
to get there. A lot of people say we can use smart contract to do uh, P2P lending. Uh, yeah, in a way, but you know, in the real world, you still probably need written contract. Written contract. So written contract is not form of smart contract. We need a, a whole legal system, accounting system, to behind this decentralized lending. So we have, yes, we're gonna accelerate. Uh, we're going this this direction much faster, but uh, we're pretty far from it. Let's get on it. Let's get onto it. I think Eric just raised a very interesting point, Alex, and that's the ledger edge of lending, because as you know, all the regulatory measurements, everything is in writing, and even more so over the last 50 years, we completely fixed on getting everything in writing and contractually agreed. If we proceed in the direction that Eric just pointed out, it's going to be an important, um, I would say, topic to bridge this new technology towards uh, the possibilities of digital lending and decentralized financial systems. Do you think it will go either the way of the smart contracts, which is actually, I would say, programming, and it needs a translation of what you actually agree on, or would it be more like uploading and then verifying? What do you think about? Will, will the pandemic make a change because we accelerate much faster than maybe technology can handle? Well, I think the answer is yes and yes. I think it will do both. Uh, with respect to writing it down, uploading, you have KYC. You need to do know your customer and you have anti-money laundering. So wherever there are institutions that go, are, pay their taxes, wherever there are CEOs whose address is known and can be arrested and put in jail, then you're going to have KYC AML. You're going to have people uploading things um, and showing those documents. Uh, however, in previous Lightning reports, we've talked about verifiable pseudonyms. And so as you have corporations that can create names for people that they can say, yes, we have the records for this person. And yes, we've done the KYC. So we're vouching for the KYC. We're vouching for the AML, but we have the records and we're not going to show you. As these services emerge that allow you to be compliant, but have anonymity or pseudonymity, then uh, we see that going. But uh, I, I saw a company, uh, Cash E, Cash E dot co dot in, and they've raised some money and they've given over a million loans, all entirely through smartphones. All, basically, the phone does the app. And so you can have people who create a cryptocurrency or who buy a cryptocurrency and then have that for their loan re reserve. So you have reserve requirement in banks. The highest I've heard of any country doing it is in times when they wanted to tighten credit, it was 10% in China. And typically it's about 5% or 4%. Uh, two months ago, the United States reserved the reserve, or one month ago rather, the, the United States Federal Reserve reserve, uh, reduced the reserve requirement to zero. So you, in, you could, in theory, make infinite loans as a corporation and still be legally compliant. I don't know how this can possibly end in anything but tears and the loss of the reserve currency. But for right now, this is the golden age of lenders because they are freed from all reasonable gravitational constraints. You can float in, you can, you can jump, and instead of coming back down to the air a second later, you can just keep floating into the sky as long as these loans get repaid. So this addition of this ability to have cryptocurrencies 
and really low reserve requirements and have the KYC done indirectly through, through other firms allows for a whole new golden age of loans for what, uh, what in India they call the common man. I don't know, the common person sounds weird. I don't know how we would say it, but basically loans will be cheaper. What's that? The average person. Yeah, it, it just, uh, and people are going to need that because in the United States, a lot of people have been living on unemployment with all, you know, 40 million people filing for unemployment. And that lasts, you know, for one more month. And then at that point, people are going to go, oh, crap. And they're going to be able, they're going to need to have loans. They're going to need to uh, collateralize things they never even dreamed of collateralizing. So I think that in your, in your question, smart contracts are uploading both on steroids. Yeah, that's very interesting that you say that because we see in the historic review that you did that in times of riots and wars, you know, authorities tend to need money to solve issues. We see that, you know, with the decision to go back to zero for the Federal Reserve, we see Frankfurt in Europe, I don't know what they're doing, but they're massively buying bonds on credit, basically, increasing that to 7,000 billion euros already. You know, these are enormous amounts of money that basically are owed whatever shape or form it takes. Now in the old days, we saw historically that, you know, authorities like kings in the old days in Europe used to solve these problems just to do away with the creditors, you know, like the, the Lights Templar. And, you know, in Spain, they have in the 15th century, some of these, you know, very effective, I would say, but, you know, virtually impossible in today's world. So, do we think that we have more oversight these days? Because with all these free money being thrown around by governments in whatever direction it takes, you know, I just today saw the list of companies in the Netherlands applying for help to keep jobs and, and credits. And some of these companies had made enormous amounts of money in the past. So in the United States, they just hand out a check to the workers. You know, there's a huge difference in how they do it. Oh, but they gave out plenty of money to corporations in the United States. They gave away trillions. So, Eric, if you say, do the current system protect us enough from all of this? Has blockchain-based crypto a better shot at giving us security? Because for my feeling, having that 0% coverage in the United States makes it basically a currency that you either trust or you don't, but there's nothing to back it anymore. So the criticism of cryptos in the past was, well, it's a nothing, it's a virtual currency. Right now, the dollar is topping the list of being the biggest cryptocurrency in that respect. Yeah, I've heard people call the dollar a shitcoin, the worst shitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as the criticism on crypto of the last couple of years always was, oh, it's virtual, you can't control it, there's nothing behind it. Well, you know, goes to show. <laughs> There's nothing behind it. So do you think that blockchain-based crypto in lending will give us, you know, as people who lend money, who normally would have a savings account, gives us better security? Because that's what we want. We want to make sure that we get our money back. You know, see, I, see I, I don't have a definitive answer to that yet. Because I've been, I've, been, I've been thinking of this problem. I think Alex in his... Uh, Piece, uh, that the lending piece, uh, Lyman report said very well. Look the uh, 500 year chart, right? The the lending interest keep declining, and now it's in the zeros. 
and even in the minus column. This is probably the first time in human history. And a lot of lenders don't know what to do. Meaning, <laughs> interest is the money, is the value of money. When you give somebody money, you, you kind, of, kind of expect interest back, right? You get some, some, some return, but now you don't. Now, it's apparently a passion to expect something back in return. <laughs> right. So, well, I mean, that's the, the basis whole... of capitalism is being able to have your capital earn a rate of interest if somebody else can get, a, get more from the money. But if there's no return on the money, how do you do capitalism? No. That's so, exactly my point. So, if I'm a private person, no matter in what asset class I'm in right now, do you think blockchain will give us more security in this area? Because if I have to work very hard for my assets, however I earn them, through savings, to working, to investment, I want to make more security for myself. You know, banks fall over in 2008 and they saved a couple, but we're way worse off with this pandemic than we were in 2008. Right. Um, this is a question I ask myself too. So basically, if you look at Bitcoin, Bitcoin doesn't provide any yield to anybody holding Bitcoin, just like gold, right? Then we have Ethereum, we have other, other coins, we have other assets. They may have, you know, we call it staking income or some other sorts of income. Um, but think about the other uh, aspect. Uh, we, think about this, when you invest into a company, it's also a form of lending. Instead of you expect interest as your return on investment, invest into some company, you expect stock or dividend as a form of return. Now, think about Ethereum. You can create new class of asset, yes, namely ERC20 tokens that represents a business that you're operating, right? This kind of, um, asset model might be a new uh, new way of um, um, crypto can you know contribute to this current problem. This is just my thinking. That uh, and also staking also so gave some return to the lenders and maybe security that knowingly these um, the original asset will not be uh, print limitlessly like so-called shitcoin US dollar, right? <laughs> yeah. So Alex, how do you see, is, is it going to make us more secure in lending? Because right now, lots of people look for alternatives, right? Uh, your normal savings account doesn't give you any more interest. You have to pay to put your money there. And the more money you have, the more you pay. That's the current situation. So how do you see, is it going to make for us, you know, regular, normal, average people having assets. Um, well, we've talked in previous Lightman reports in our discussion about the value of cryptocurrency as being potentially non-correlated assets. Mm -hmm. So if things go bad, that they won't go down as much as the other things because pretty much the other assets are a bit too highly coordinated, uh, uh, co uh, correlated. So we want something that we can tr have true diversification in. And previously we had this problem with Bitcoin volatility, but as we've seen in a previous Lightman report, the volatility is getting down, down, down. And now the volatility is actually 
not that much above gold as an example. So that's one problem. We, have, we can find a lot of trend lines and the trend lines have go, been going in favor of crypto in general. You know, we have the percentage that, uh, you know, Bitcoin dominance, and then we have the wider dominance of Bitcoin code base. But if we can find um, crypto that doesn't have correlation with, uh, with investments going down, and we can have one with loans, so that if we have certain kinds of loans, too many loans that are bad within a country, like I expect it to be in some big economies, they have too many bad loans and it will affect them. Um, but if we can have a lot of loans that are in crypto that get paid back because they have smart contracts and they have, you know, they're cross collateralized by a bunch of crypto, we can actually have islands of stability that will survive what most people I know are thinking is a big crash coming. Like, look at how valuable Tesla is uh, and look at how few cars they make. And I just see people talking themselves into thinking that it's going to keep on shooting to the moon. Things don't tend to go vertical up and then keep going up. You know, trees don't basically grow into the, into this, through the sky and into space. They fall down at some point. And so we want to have a lot of little things that allow diversification of currencies and investments and even loans. And that's what makes for greater economic stability, which makes for better political stability. I think you made a very interesting point just now about Tesla, because if you look at the situation where, you know, cryptocurrencies, stable coins, you know, blockchain based solutions are usually placed by the existing systems in a corner like you can't trust it, there's no assets behind it, it's not collateralized and so on and so on. If you now look at the stock value, Tesla is more valuable than Toyota. Now, if anybody knows how big Toyota is and what they produce and what the actual assets in the company are, that is quite difficult to understand for somebody like me. You know? well, I can give you a statistic. Last year, the, uh, there were 94 million motor vehicles produced. And right now, Tesla is almost as valuable as the majority of, those, of the companies that produce the majority of those vehicles so you can't basically give tesla a hundred to one or whatever the number is greater market value per vehicle it's because there's not uh remember this is the same uh company whose ceo said all our patents are belong to you so that's a joking gamer way you know <laughs> all your base are belong to us that's from a from a mistranslated japanese game but he's saying hey we're not going to sue you for taking our patents. So there is nothing that stops other companies from making electric vehicles or solar panels, the two main businesses, or batteries. And those batteries come from Panasonic. So it isn't as if other companies can't go and make batteries. And what really matters is who has control of the cobalt. And as far as I know, uh, and also rare earth metals. And as far as I know, 97% of rare earth metals are produced in China and 85% of all the cobalt, which is associated with the copper belt across Democratic oh. Republic of Congo and Zambia. China just made a deal with Zambia to buy part of the Victoria Falls. So China has a really good relationship with Zambia that nobody else has. So you better you better be on good terms with China if you want to make electric vehicles. And frankly, 
I don't see a way that you beat China in the long run in electric vehicles. I think that's, I've thought for a long time that that's their thing. And so uh, the more valuable Tesla is, the more, just like with Cisco, I had conversations with Chinese officials who asked me, hey, Cisco is worth 555 billion. All the stocks in China that are publicly listed come to 256 billion. What's going on? And I said, well, the, the value of a company is the net present value of all the future profits. But if it's of a whole sector and people don't know how the sector is, they use a company as a placeholder for the sector as a whole. And they said, oh, so we basically need to have a company that is, looks like it has the future of the internet. It's like, sure. And that led to a lot of support for Huawei. And like Huawei getting support, that same support that made Huawei such a, almost a, a nation state in power is going to go into self-driving electric vehicles that have an unquestioned access to cobalt and rare earth metals. And the only place you're gonna get that is China. So I think that in all these kind of things, there has to be a level of diversification. I but think you can't really value Tesla so high. I think there are a couple of points that we need to mark here. All the cobalt that comes out on an annual, you know, mining um, situation is not even enough to cover the needs for a city like Shanghai to public transport uh, batteries, you know, for buses and taxis. It's just not enough. It's probably yeah, the just a that Elon Musk yeah. now really looking into developing alternative methods for not using cobalt for, for basically electricity storage. The other thing is, if I look at a lot of countries that are now promoting electric driving, okay, in Europe, petrol is very expensive because there's a lot of taxation on it. If from today on, all vehicles in my country were to drive electric, the government has a serious budget issue just because nobody will pump gas anymore. You know, I, I told this to the U.S. The, the Secretary of Transportation and all 50 st state secretaries of transportation when I did a talk on the next 50 years from 2010 to 2060 in 2010. And I said that they need to switch to being the Department of Infrastructure and they need to grab the public electric utilities and they have to switch from a tax on gasoline to a tax on electricity. And they just sort of stared at me. It's like, what are you talking about? The thing is, it's very interesting because since infrastructures become not a centralized situation anymore, it's running into serious issues in many countries. And the US is an exemplary model of that, I would say. So to have the wish to go electric is one, but you need you know, the materials to produce even the basic goods to do it. And you also need a system to basically support this in the sense that it would mean that any house in my country, in any European country, any world country, needs to have a plug where, you know, you can basically have a socket to put the plug of the car in, otherwise you couldn't be able to drive. So there's a lot to say for all these diversifications in, in driving, but I think one of the big challenges is to do with without cobalt. Cobalt is going to be expensive, it's going to be rare, and there's never going to be enough, you know, to really speed the process up. To go in that, you know, oversight of what we just shared about having access to things. If you had one wish, Eric, into decentralized finance, when we talk about lending, what would you like to create tomorrow morning? What would you really want to see there? 
Oh, wow. I would like to see a lot of uh, digital assets that can be collateralized into this DeFi system. Right now, we don't have enough. So people have to say, oh, I want to borrow no, $10,000 worth of uh, you know, USDT or something. But what kind of collateral can you bring to the table? But only digital assets, right? So the real life asset, can I put, put up my watch as a collateral? No, you probably cannot. So uh, in order for DeFi to flourish, we need to have a lot of DeFi assets, digital assets first, to be able to collateralize to facilitate the whole lending and loaning and you know interest making this kind of thing, or we can have a lot of projects. Let's say you can start a startup project. These uh, the equities of these companies, these projects can become like stock-like, share-like, STO-like uh, a token, become digital asset, then you can collateralize to lend, borrow, and uh, loan money out. This is what I really want to see. Okay, Alex, in the length of this, because I think collateralizing existing assets is the future, you know, for, for, for lending. I once held a speech about collateralizing things like carbon rights. We all have this stupid ongoing thing about really dirty uh, factories at one end of the planet selling rights to a company, maybe in a more country and therefore still being able to be polluted. But if we would to be able to collateralize rights like that, you know, rights to have carbon dioxide acids, have all sorts of things going, that could be a vital start into solving a lot of problems. How do you see your, I would say, next morning wish in decentralized finance when it comes to lending? What would you like to see? Well, I would have said the same thing as Eric, that I want to see digital assets used as collateral. And I mean, for instance, if I were Eric, it would be a joy to see metaverse DNA be used as collateral for loans. And so I think that everybody who makes a cryptocurrency who creates a, or who creates a platform should think about how to put together lenders and borrowers because there are lenders who, have, um, who are not getting very much. Uh, Marissa, uh, I forget the, the name, Dumbo, I think, wrote a book called Dead Aid, which is about aid to Africa that was just self-serving. It would be given with strings attached that would just lead to purchases and not really benefit the people. But the ability to put, uh, we have a wonderful way to help the poor these days. And that is take all these people who are getting no money on their, their cash. Uh, and I think Ray Dalio said cash is trash. Uh, these days, you know, because he earns nothing. And then if you can get that and give loans to people, there are people who can actually make really good returns on small loans, on micro loans, as the Grameen Bank found and others have found. And these micro loans, because people realize the difference between good credit and not credit, have a shockingly high repay repayment rate, certainly much higher than Latin American governments. Our African governments that have been borrowing money, which are, I mean, how many times has Latin America defaulted? It's hundreds of times that they've defaulted on sovereign guarantees on loans. Um, and, and, but the other thing is, I'd love to have something where anybody can buy, sell, borrow, loan, or swap from a mobile phone. So ultimately, I would like to, to add to what Eric said, 
to have universal access. So if you have a mobile phone, um, that you can basically use your biometrics to unlock it, even with pseudonymity, and you can borrow money. And if you need $1,000 of the equivalent today, you can get it. You know, you can get it at least once, and if you pay it back, then you can get it again. And if you always pay it back, I think you should always be able to get a loan, no matter what the global conditions are, no matter what the politics are. That's what I would like to see. And that's a world that would work like Buckminster Fuller said, a world that works for everyone. I think that's really a very good way to look forward to the future. I want to close this interview off with one really remarkable thing that you just said, Alex, that in lines with what Eric just said about digital assets. Apparently, individuals are much better at paying their debts back than governments are. I look forward to the second half of your live report on lending. Thank you so much, people. Thanks for joining us this week on the Blockchain DNA podcast. Make sure to visit our website and follow us on social media at DNA by Metaverse or at MVS DNA. Till next time. Till next time. Till next time.